Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. program. My guest this morning is Judith Mitrani, uh, who's the author of a delightful new memoir, The Most Beautiful Place in the World, which is Paris, a thought that we share. And uh, Judith and her, uh, her husband, Ted, uh, licensed practicing psychoanalysts in, uh, in Beverly Hills at, 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 uh, at a certain age when most people were practicing real retirement, decided to fold their practice uh, uh, warning their, their customers in advance, uh, grab their cat after selling their home in Beverly Hills and come to Paris. So as, as we say in, in the uh, psychoanalytic world, uh, what prompted this Meshuggah behavior? <laughs> well, it's so lovely to talk to you, Terrence. I, <laughs> I have enjoyed, I have enjoyed reading you for probably since the first six months we were here so it's just about five years and wondering wondering who this who this mishugana man is and well you've met this mishugana man so you you can probably uh, through your clinical analysis uh, have an, an understanding of who i am no i i don't i don't do i don't i don't <laughs> practice unless i um <laughs> and retired but um what caused us Hello? to to okay. uh jump with both feet not looking what we were doing and um, leaving a booming practice and a successful career, traveling all over the world on other people's money and, um, and landing in Paris, where, by the way, I didn't speak the language at all. And, um, but we had many friends here and we had family here and we knew that this was the place if we were ever able to retire that we wanted to come and uh, we had been here at least once or twice a year once or twice a year yes once or twice a year for 40 years and uh, three four weeks uh, twice a year and uh, we we thought we knew Paris Ted has perfect French but he found he had to learn whole new vocabularies in order to be able to talk to uh, contractors and subcontractors and bankers and uh, lawyers and all sorts of people. And um, it was quite, quite an amazing adaptation that we had to make, but we love it here. And um, I would correct you on one thing and that is that I started out writing okay. the book thinking that Paris was the most beautiful place in the world. But about two-thirds of the way through it, I realized that Paris is a state of mind. And that there are plenty of people living in Paris who don't feel it's the most beautiful place in the world. And we're right at that point in the year where they're all leaving town. <laughs> to go anywhere else they can get. And um, and we're here and have Paris all to ourselves. Yeah, that's the, that's the great thing about uh, July and uh, late July and early August that a lot of people forget. 
uh, museums are more accessible, uh, restaurants are more accessible. Uh, you know, life is a little less frenetic. Yeah, but yet it's the, gorgeous, the and, and it's much more. It's it's much more frenetic and lively and energetic than it was during that horrible fifteen months of confinement we had, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Has I mean, I've apparently uh, Paris has lived up to your expectations. Well, we knew Paris very well. And um, we knew it so well that we thought that we could probably find the apartment we wanted by uh, doing an exhaustive search for a couple of years on the Internet and really getting to know the market well and the pricing well and so forth. And so uh, but we were very surprised that when we got here and we had just barely moved into our temporary rental apartment, which was really lovely, um, but it was two days later that we uh, were able to see the first house on our list, and it turned out to be exactly the right apartment, an area that we thought we could afford to live in, except that the prices were down when we came in May of 2016. And when we left L.A. and sold our home, and not in Beverly Hills, but on the wrong side of the tracks between UCLA and Beverly Hills. And we, um, we, we sold our house probably for about a third more than we thought because the prices had come back from, you know, that terrible, that 2008, you know, fall off 2008. the cliff. And our, our retirement fund had come back from, you know, also following, falling off the cliff. And, but Paris was behind us, which is true in more ways than one. And, <laughs> and, um, and they had just started into the depths of their recession. And so we were very lucky. We ended up with a beautiful apartment and, from the moment we moved in, everyone that we knew said, my God, this apartment looks like you have always lived in it. Well, we, you must mention, Judith, that well, you shipped all that furniture. Well, it looks dramatically different in that we look had dramatically a, different. a traditional English-style two-story home in, in West Los Angeles. And um, very, very lovely, up on a knoll, a grassy knoll with, uh, with beautiful roses going down the steps to the street. And, um, and it was very pretty, but, um, but it didn't have, and it had high ceilings, but our ceilings here are 18 feet tall, and every room has a different original molding from 1880, which was when the building was built. It's an old freestone, small freestone building on a very famous street. It's famous for the two honey stores that it has and a place called Pot-a-Feu um, that everyone knows and it's been here since 1959. And uh, used to be on the corner of the museum on both corners actually which had just gone bankrupt the year before we moved here. And we're right across, right around the corner from the Church of the Madeleine, which we call our neighborhood church. 
mm. where all Jews go on Christmas Eve, on yeah, where on, all Jews go on, on Sunday, Easter. Right? <laughs> wonderful! It's wonderful. It's the first time in my life that I've been singing Christmas carols in French. <laughs> well, you're one step ahead of me. I, I sing all the carols, all of which have mostly been written by Jewish composers, uh, Irving Berlin, Mel Torme, and so on. Uh, but, the, uh, but the French version, you know, I haven't, I haven't found yet. Uh, not quite. But you were... Ex- uh, I'm sorry. Well, the- the, one, the ones that were originally French are sung yeah, in exactly. French. <laughs> well, you, the, uh, but you had an extraordinary uh, bit of luck in, in that uh, the very first ap- apartment home that you looked at, uh, you fell in love with. And, you know, it's almost like a rule of thumb. You never take the first thing you see because there might be there Absolutely. might be a better deal. And you'll, you'll regret it for Absolutely. the rest of your life. But not so. Not so. And, and we had a list a mile long of ap- appointments to go and see other apartments before this one because this looked like it was the nicest. And we thought, oh, my God, what if it is just what we think it is? And, and we have no choice. We're going to have to make an offer on it without seeing anything else. And, um, but we got really brave, and we had spent... Uh, quite a bit of time in the apartment, both in the afternoon and at night after dark, and across, oh, and having supper outside. It was a beautiful evening, and um, and we just said, "This is it. This it doesn't it doesn't didn't need anything. Uh, it was in perfect condition. The people who owned it before us, he was a um, he was a, a very well known." Uh, um, oh, I'm going to forget forget what what they're called. Um, he, he was a diplomat uh, that had positions in two different states in Africa, and, um, and the only thing diplomat. about the furnishing in the house was that it was very sparse and had kind of an African appeal to it. I think it was shipped over from Africa. And but we could see all of our classically French and Italian furniture being in this apartment, and so we just said, "What the heck? Let's do it." We made a list. We said, "These are all the the things that we don't get that we wanted, and these are all the things that we will get that we wanted." And um, and voila, there was only two or three things that didn't didn't come in on the list, and we thought we're going to grab it. And we, we were, yeah, and we were, we were really lucky because there was a Chinese family who'd come to see it oh, yeah, you, uh, at, and at you three did. hours before we did and had made a full price offer on it, but they wanted uh, financing. And, um, and so the broker that showed it to us convinced the owner that he should sell it mm-hmm. to us since we also made a full price offer. And uh, we were paying cash because we had cash from the sale of our home. So we were very, very, very lucky, and absolutely and you, and you made it made it into a wonderful home. Yeah, I want to go back a little bit to the book uh, because as I as I read it and as you we talk about it, uh, it, it is to some degree a lot less a memoir. I don't want to impose my uh, amateur psychoanalytic powers on this. But what you're really talking about is finding that level of, of tranquility, that place 
uh, both in your heart and and on the ground that works for you. I always said to people, you know, uh, my my Paris is Paris. Yours could be Toledo, Ohio. But, I, you know, life is much, uh, I, I think, about finding what fits for you, finding what works and, and celebrating that, you know, wherever it happens to be. We're lucky that we happen to be in perhaps the most beautiful city in the world. But I, I think that's if I get what you were writing well, about. Uh, interestingly the enough, the real journey was writing the book. I call it my third analysis because I, I was just going to write a very straightforward book about the first four years before the before the pandemic hit the first four years of living here and and retiring and then moving to paris and as i started to write i um i found that everything i wrote about could be associated with and was associated with something in my past and um, in fact, I learned many things that I hadn't given any significance to in the past, uh, but that gained significance because of what happened in that last four years. And, um, and so it, it truly is a memoir. In, in, I, I can't say it's in the style of Proust other than the fact that it... Uh, is really a composition that engages involuntary memory. And well, you know, I think that you know, for anyone who's writing by um, autobiography, and I, I wrote something, uh, and many, many people with greater talent than I have done the same. But I think when what one doesn't necessarily realize until you get into the work. It's just how universal our story is. And when you try to be somewhat artificial about it or, or literary about it, it gets lost. And what people respond to is the immediacy of the voice, the, the honesty in what's being said, uh, which they can then themselves begin to apply to their own thinking in their own lives. And well, I think you're little, right. I and I'm, I'm, I'm very flattered that you, that you actually were able to connect with um, – the kind of spontaneity that I was able to keep as I went through all those events and described them, uh, both the events in the immediate four years and uh, all the events that were connected with them from, from the past, including the you know beginnings of my relationship with Ted, of course, because our whole romance was built on Paris. And after 40 years to still be in love, I think that's saying a lot. And, <laughs> and I think it has a lot to do with the foundations that were built, spending time Absolutely. in Europe Paris and in particular you know, in, in Paris. So many, so many of those things. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I congratulate you on being able to, to find that and to share it and to... Uh, to, to be here in, in a great a great place in in your lives and a great place uh, on the on the real world, if you will, in terra firma. Uh, so this is wonderful. I uh, compliment you again. I, this was a, a delightful read. Having met you before and now knowing you a little bit more, it's even more uh, uh, more striking to me and, and, and more enjoyable. So uh, hats off or chapeau, as we say. Uh, Judith, uh, yeah, keep. I, I, just before we, uh, I, I know you're working yes. on another book. Uh, what is it? Blood on the couch. Uh, 
Couched in Blood. Okay. No, 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 no. It's called Couched in Blood. And it's uh, it takes place, it, it does take place in Beverly Hills, uh, in a place we used to call Couch Canyon, where all the analysts had their offices. It's very much like Harley Street in London. And um, yes, I, I'm looking forward to, I'm just finishing up the edit. It's going wow. to the publisher well, to, to in August, and it'll be out in September. And it's my first piece of real fiction. After after six well, books, an interesting it's conversation my first also piece is one of real fiction. I've always thought that fiction is very very difficult to do. It's a totally other uh, kind kind of experience. Are you are you borrowing a little bit of Jonathan Kellerman uh, since we're talking about analysts who were uh, writing about the murders in Los Angeles? Influence. Well, I know I know Jonathan and his no, wife no, I and. They're not analysts. They're they're psychotherapists. They were were psychotherapists. She was a dentist, and um, and I wish I wrote like him. I mean, he he's remarkable, and of course, he's written so many novels. I, I remember I discovered his first novel when the, bow the year that it was it was published. When the bow breaks, and also her first novel which um, was before uh, her mystery series. It was um, mm. uh, The Quality of Mercy. And, and I think it's her best book. It's a beautiful book. It's, it's a fiction about a young Jewish woman converso in, in London in uh, the 15, 16th century who falls madly in love with, while having a sword fight with Shakespeare. <laughs> no, because I, I know you know there was a great uh, a champion boxer named Mendoza in London who was a Sephardic Jew at that point. The, the thing about you know we'll do a quick uh, uh, blast for uh, Jonathan, but what I uh, I admired so much about that is he creates a, a a gay character before it became fashionable and obligatory, who is. Uh, uh, a slob. He's six foot three. He, you know, everything you wouldn't imagine in, in terms of the stereotypical behaviors. Uh, and uh, his lead character is a straight guy with a beautiful girlfriend. And, and they have this. They, they become the best of friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we had to get the animals in there, of course. I'm, I'm cut. Anyway, this has been great. So uh, I look okay. forward to the next book. Per month for this apartment for six months. <clears throat> And we only rented it because she would accept a cat. And most people wouldn't. And, and the furniture was our style, and it looked comfortable. And we thought we could live here for six months. It would be OK. And, um, and so here is Marie Claire, who's been paying 200 a month to live in a glorious apartment in the Odeon. And, and she all of a sudden finds herself and her belongings on the street. And anything she can rent is going to cost her boku bucks. And uh, we thought, we don't want that to happen to us when we're 85. It's hard enough to think of moving at 67. <laughs> and so, um, so we definitely realized that we were going to have to invest in walls and a roof. And that's exactly what we did. So now I'm forgetting what you wanted to know. Um, <laughs> ah, okay, so our, our wonderful synchronicity with, with finding places to live in Paris. 
So we had found that place online, but we had been looking at apartments to buy for two years. Um, every weekend we'd sit down on the internet and we'd look to see what you can get for how much and where and what it looked like. Because by then, as this was around between 2014 and 2016, by then they had you know, many pictures on ads for apartments in Paris, which they hadn't had for many, many years. And so we kind of had an idea of what we might be able to do. And, um, and so we decided to, as you say, jump in feet first and um, into, this, into this very comfortable, slightly shabby, chic um, apartment. And the second day we were there, this was before the weekend of the Annunciation. And uh, for people who don't know the French, the French have a, the French work between a uh, vacation and um, and uh, and a holiday. Well, you're talking about the month of May, which looks like a Swiss cheese on a calendar. Absolutely, absolutely. And this was the first week in May. I had made ten appointments starting the second day we were there to look at apartments we had seen online that we were very interested in in the. 9th, the 8th, and the 17th. And um, <laughs> and it turned out that everybody went away on Tuesday. We had arrived on Tuesday evening. Everyone went away on Tuesday, canceled all the appointments, and weren't coming back until the following Tuesday because there was another holiday on Monday. So And then there was the weekend in between the Thursday and the Monday. And so everybody just took off a week except for one person, this young man named Edward, who worked as an assistant to uh, an immobilier, uh, which is a, a real estate broker in Paris. And he said, um, the, the guardian of the building that the apartment you're interested in uh, is staying in Paris for the holidays he has the keys to the apartment, which is vacant but lived in, and he has permission from the owner to show it. So if you'd like to see it, I'll take you. So he said, I'll pick you up at 5 o'clock uh, tomorrow. Is that all right? And I said, fine. And, um, and picking us up, being from L.A., we thought meant with a car. But no, it meant, you know, we followed him to the apartment, which turned out to be 10 minutes away from where we were living, which was in the first and probably one of the most expensive areas to live in in Paris. And so, um, I mean, even for an apartment like this uh, in Paris, that's very high rent. And so, um, so we went to see this apartment very reluctantly because the pictures we had seen, and there were 25 of them, made us feel like, oh my God, if this apartment looks the way it looks on paper, um, we're in trouble because to have to see the apartment that's just right for you first before you see anything else, knowing that it's a good apartment, you either make an offer or you run the risk of losing it because you have to wait a week in order to see other apartments. And so we looked at each other 
And uh, dot, 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 the next thing you know, we made an offer and we bought it. So we had been in Paris for three days. And, <laughs> and we were so fortunate. Uh, I just, I, I mean, even though we've had, we've had problems, but it's mostly learning to live with a building. We'd always, uh, with the uh, co-proprietors, mm -hmm. we, we had always been used to living either in our own single um, uh, residential dwelling or in a condo where we had one neighbor across the hall and you couldn't hear anybody else in the building. And so um, it, it was, what can I say? It, it, was a, it was a real culture shock. The, uh, the, the attitudes of people, they are incredibly polite in Paris. But um, but there is a problem getting things done. And when you're American, you know, something goes wrong, you want it done today. And why can't we do it today? And of course, you have to go through the president of the co-proprietors. Co you have to go through the syndic. You have to go through the the engineer that the syndic sends out. And then you have to get three devis which are estimates for work to be done, and it is a nightmare. <laughs> well, we, we understand that, yeah. Unless you get used to it. And, and this is one thing I have to say, is that Ted and I are lucky enough to be adaptable, and, um, and, and, and we would oftentimes now laugh about things like that. Because it's so absurd. It's it's absurd. We are. How did we expect to come and live in a city that looked like the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, which is what we love about it, and expect the people to be any different? You know. And I mean, there are still things. We have friends coming over all the time who say, would you like me to bring you anything? And boy, did we have lists for people to, you know, put in their in their suitcases and bring over here like mules um, because they don't have things in Paris that we have in America. And uh, but, things- But it's Paris. But it's Paris, but it's Paris. And, and when you're in love, you tend to blur a little bit the boundaries of, things that are not perfect. And um, for me, this still is the most beautiful place in the world. But um, I... I, I, can, <laughs> I can use the voice of Johnny Mathis to underline that thought, and which, uh, where Johnny had said, it's not just for what you are yourself that I love you. As like I do, <laughs> but for what I am, when I am with you. And that's Paris. That is exactly Paris. And, um, and as long as you can stay in touch with your state of mind um, and not allow, you know, niggledy things to bother you, um, material things to bother you, uh, you know, somebody who's a little too drunk in the cafe across the street at night to bother you. Um, in fact, I find that probably one of the most charming things. And, and during the c confinement, 
when we were lucky enough to have the Place Madeleine and the Place Concorde and all the way around down the riverside to be able to walk in. And when they did open the Tuileries and uh, the Elysee Park, we were able to walk in without being close to anybody. Um, we, we, we realized how much we missed the energy that comes with having people spilling out of cafes and restaurants late at night, talking loudly, maybe a little bit too much when they're a little bit too, had too, a little bit too much wine or a little too much champagne. But never violently. This is not, people don't get drunk here like they do in America. No, people don't get, they're not they don't get such drunk in as, general. There's no such thing as an alcoholic unless they're mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the norm is that people like their champagne, they like their wine, and they don't get drunk. Right. Um, and, they're, and they're not um, they're not addicted. It's just a part of the social milieu, you know, even this, at lunch. Analysts we, analysts we know would always have a glass of wine with lunch. Sure. Americans would never think of doing that. Because we wouldn't have our head about us when we went back to work in the afternoon. Well, that's a whole, uh, you know, one of the reasons, I guess, why, you know, why we're here. Uh, I want to, before I come back and talk a little bit more about Paris, uh, you, you, you know, you make, you make a very valid point that I, I think many, many people at a certain age are, are, are paralyzed with indecision. They're not happy, well, you know this from professionally, they're not happy in their current circumstance, but are powerless to do anything about it. And to, to come here, particularly as an adult, because this is, this is, this is Disneyland for adults. Uh, it, the kids are, are worried sick about passing their backs, but we're here to go out and have a glass of wine, sit and, and talk to an 80-year-old person who lived through the occupation, a, a beautiful yeah. woman who's 80, but she's still just a beautiful woman, not an old lady. Um, mm. to, you know, to, to kind of the pleasure and the joy of interacting and conversing with people that has nothing to do with the size of your stock portfolio or how much your property in Beverly Hills went up in value last week. Absolutely. Uh, real human interaction. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, and I've had friends of mine who are kind of, you know, uh, complimentary and kind of wish they could do, you know, what I did. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I just realized this is where I needed to be. And it was now or never, so I did it. But I, I think people face those uh, bridges often in our lives. And, and they're just, they don't make a bad decision. They don't make any decision. Yes. Well, you know, you were extraordinarily brave coming over here the way you did. Um, Ted and I were m mildly brave, but everyone we knew in, in the States, when we would tell them what we were going to do, first of all, that we were going to retire at 67 when we were at the top of our game. And secondly, that we were going to emigrate to France. And they said, but nobody does that. And you know, nobody would think of doing that. And, I, you know, isn't there someplace else you would like to live in the States? I said, no. And I knew people all over the States. It wasn't that. We knew people all over Europe. There, just Paris really had our, our heart and congealed our 
romance, and I think has been a large part of keeping our romance going for these 40 years. And, um, and, and we were very lucky to live here, even though what it has become actually over 40 years is uh, a living museum. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and that, you know, that's a problem when you're not a tourist, you realize that no wonder the French leave in the summer. The French leave Paris in the summer because they don't want to be here when all the tourists are here. And, um, and they want to go someplace where it's very warm, you know, which Ted and I, we love cold weather. This summer is the most delightful summer it, to be in Paris for us. Well, this is, as Mark cool. Twain said about San Francisco, you know, the, the, what is it, the coldest winter he ever spent was a summer in San Francisco? It was a summer in San Francisco. Well, the last, cu last couple of weeks have been certainly autumn-like, to say the least. Well, yeah, it's, or, or spring-like, or whatever. No, autumn, I, it's, I it's grayer. Spring, I associate with sunshine. I don't know. Spring, some, but you know, so I, since we've lived here, spring hasn't had that much sun. No, no. May used to be a delightful month to come to Paris, and May has, has always been rainy since yeah, that we was moved. A, well, you, the rain used to be in April, uh, you know, and there was, as, as the song, you know, talked without mentioning the rain, and then as Navour wrote a wonderful song called Paris, uh, Paris is at her best in May, uh, which was true for a long period of time, and uh, I don't know, but let's look this way, Paris is Paris no matter what the weather's like. We're still in Absolutely. Paris. Absolutely. It doesn't matter to me at all, and I don't mind traipsing around with the rain. In fact, one of the things we realized when we had the confinement, pretty much for our, us at our age before we were vaccinated, um, it went on for about 15 months. And um, and one of the things that we really missed was being able to walk with, you know, I mean, being sensibly dressed in case it rains, but it starts raining. You just duck in a cafe and you sit, sit with people around you and uh, and then it stops raining in 10 minutes. Well, speaking of rain, I had an experience last Sunday. I was on my way to my daughter's house for lunch when the uh, Alvers came, this huge a temporary mm -hmm. shower, and I ducked under the awning, and there were two women, uh, a, a blonde and a, and a, and a raven-haired woman. It was quite striking. And I, I started singing uh, singing in the rain to them. And she, did you she, really? I did, I did. That I'll sounds send, like you. I'll send you the video. <laughs> anyway, she takes out she takes out a camera, asks if she can shoot me, and, you know, and, and she does, you know, and that was, uh, that was just, like, great fun. Uh, this, is, this is part of your character that allows you to be able to live as an American in Paris. Well, it's, what, it's, it's what Paris allows me to be. This behavior would not be tolerated in America. Well, uh, that's true. That's I, true. I, I'm, I'm so within... I can be me myself here. You know, America is not ready for me in the, uh, uh, <laughs> in, in the true state. As, I, as Kevin Spacey said in uh, L.A. Confidential, you know, the world is not ready for the real Jack Vincennes. Oh, God. You know, this is what I love about your newsletters and your blogs and everything that you send out. I always enjoy reading them in the morning because um, you talk about the kind of history that I grew up with because I had two much older sisters. And because we practically lived in Hollywood, um, I, I was... I was um, uh, starting with first memories too, 
my next oldest sister was 12. My next oldest sister was 15. And, um, and of course, they were, you know, they lived in Photoplay <laughs> magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. And, um, and I, would si- I, would, I would say, I'll brush your hair if you'll let me sit in bed with you and watch a movie. And, you know, so I would brush their hair and they would let me sit and watch all of these wonderful old movies that were on Channel 9 in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, Million Dollar Movie, it was called. Well, it, was it, we, that was Channel 9 in New York. I didn't realize you had it out there as well. But probably oh, owned, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, probably owned and by RKO. Owned by RKO, and it had every old movie, and they would play the same movie once a day and four times on the weekends. No, twice a day. It was like 7 or 7.30 and 10.30. I I saw Al Jolson go into his dance about 20 times in a week. Uh, Yeah, that was was great. And the overture, it was the overture to to, uh, Gone with the Wind that was the theme song. But we didn't didn't realize that growing up. We thought it was the the theme to the million-dollar movie. Well, that was before we were born. In that, in that, in that. We before we were sentient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. There you go. Let's just come back to Paris a little bit. We have a little bit, a, a little more time. Yes. What What has been the most surprising or gratifying part of this experience for you and Ted? Oh my God, Be, uh, being able to do what we want spontaneously. Mm. Um, with few exceptions that were caused by jumping in feet first, and we I, I used to walk five and six miles a day, every day, and I didn't know that at our age, especially, you need time for your bones to regenerate. And so I would walk from the time we had breakfast until the time we went to sleep. And uh, I ended up with uh, sequential uh, fifth metatarsal fractures, mm. which, which you, you know, stress fractures, sure. which, which uh, almost all people get if they stay here for more than three weeks. And I, I waited two months, and then I got my first one, and then I had three months of freedom, and then I got my second one, and uh, there was uh, nine months of recovery with the first and a year with the second. So I so, had... So much for your basketball career. So much for my basketball career, so much for my horseback riding career, so much for my walking five and six miles a day, because I have to realize I'm a 72-year-old woman. What are you going to do? Your bones do not regenerate the way they used to. And, uh, you know, and if you fall on your knee, uh, you don't just get a, a boo-boo. Mm-hmm. You, you get a split open knee if you're lucky and you have chubby knees. And if you don't have chubby knees, God help you because your knee will break. And so, so, so all I can say is um, the most wonderful thing is being able to just follow whatever we wake up in the morning with wanting to do for the large part. Um, Some things, of course, you have to plan ahead. And we had subscribed to the Philharmonie, to the opera, to the Théâtre Champs-Élysées, to several chamber music groups, and went to music and services over at the Madeleine, our local church, all the time. (laughs) We We even were introduced to follow, when somebody heard us speaking English together, 
um, because my my French speaking husband will not speak English with me. I mean French with me because he says it's not normal. <laughs> so our language is English, and um, and he speaks seven languages. And his dinner table at home as a kid growing up used to be seven languages and certain people spoke certain languages together and not other languages together, even though they knew all of the languages. Crazy. And so I think the spontaneity, I think the, the variety of things you can do, the surprises, the, the amazing surprises that you, if you just let yourself get lost, um, you run into things that you never could have found with a guidebook in a million years. Um, I'd tell you about our first date in Paris, but uh, I don't think you'd have time for it. But uh, it's that kind of situation of um, Ted's French allowing him to talk to a tour guide when he took me uh, on our honeymoon, no, sorry, on our engagement trip, he took me to Versailles on a tour bus. Mm. And he and I were sitting in the seat behind the tour guide. And she was a delightful young woman, and they spoke French the whole time. And he asked her, in French, of course, uh, listen, we don't want to have lunch where the tourists go, could you kindly direct me to a hotel where the tourists do not go, where the locals go? And she said, oh, of course. And she told them exactly where to go. So we get off the bus and he says, no, you don't go that way, come this way. And he takes me around the corner and we come to a little blue house and there are three steps going up to the blue front door. And the door opens and there is a penguin standing there. There is a man in full formal tuxedo with tails. And we are wearing jeans and a sweatshirt. We're soaking wet from the rain in December. And um, I mean, really like drowned rats. And Ted starts apologizing profusely in his very eloquent French and is backing me out the door. And, and they said, no, 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 we have the table for you, don't worry. And they put us at a table in the middle of the room. And, and the hilarious thing about this is that, you know the couple on uh, American Gothic? Yeah, yeah, Grant, the Grant Woods uh, painting. Uh, yeah. that, old, that old couple with the, the pitchfork. Pitch, pitchfork and the shovel. They, they were following us. <laughs> because they heard Ted talking and they decided, well, this guy knows where to go on, we're following him. So they had followed us and they came in behind us and they sat them at a table across the way from us. And Ted went over, Ted went over to the table and he said, he said, I hope this is okay for you because lunch there in 1981 was $100 a person. <laughs> and they said, we have been saving our whole life to have a meal like this. Oh, that's a, do you remember the restaurant? <laughs> yeah, it was the Trois Marches. Ah, d'accord. Okay. The Trois Marches. And um, I, I just, uh, you know, unfortunately, the Trois Marches, a few years later, moved. Out. We got to go back again on our honeymoon. Then it moved into the, the W Hotel on mm. the on the 
park of the Versailles. Mm. And uh, it, it was very cold. The original Trois Marches was <clears throat> like being in a private, very elegant home with beautiful blue velvet drapes and satin everything. And oh my God, it was gorgeous. And we, and we missed the whole tour. We never saw Versailles because we sat and had a three and a half hour lunch, drank an entire bottle of wine. And- Well, no, and you, you certainly understand because I know, I've always said to people, you know, if, you're, if you have a two o'clock meeting to see the, uh, La Gioconde and you're at the Dimago having coffee and you're engaged in a wonderful conversation with yes. a couple or, or next to you, uh, can have another drink, enjoy the conversation. That's why you hear Mona Lisa's not going anywhere except for 1910. She disappeared for a couple of years, but she's always been there and she'll always be there. Uh, there you, come, you go. You come to Paris for that serendipitous experience that you can't experience in America. Absolutely. It's the, it's the things you don't expect. It's the things you didn't plan for. And that, to me, is what retirement in Paris is. If you don't do the thing you had originally planned to do today, you can always do it some other time. Absolutely. You let, you let things just take you away. And, um, and that's wonderful. And being so close to so many great cities that you can just say one day, I want to go and see the carpet in Brussels in August, you know, the flower carpet. Mm -hmm. And you get on, on, you get in your, well, now we have a car. After I was, was going to say, uh, as a final thought, uh, to invoke a clinical uh, expression, uh, what possessed you to be so mashugana as to get a car in Paris. <laughs> or you come to Paris to, so you don't need a car. We got it to go outside of uh, Paris. But during the pandemic, if we, couldn't, um, if we couldn't walk as far as we wanted to walk, uh, or if we had a doctor's appointment, most of our doctors are in the 16th, which is about four kilometers each way for us to, to walk, which is a, a little bit far. And uh, unless it's a really nice day, and then you can sit every once in a while. If, if, a, if a cafe is not open, you can sit in a park bench. But, um, but even you know now, everything's open, so you can sit in a cafe for a while. But, but um, we were taking Ubers because both of us, before we were vaccinated, decided we are not taking public transportation. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and and we're the only people we know who don't didn't have someone in their family, or themselves, or or uh, a, fr a friend um, that that um, that got the virus, mm -hmm. and we were really cloistered, which is why I wrote two books. Mm -hmm. I didn't just write the memoir, but I had to go write this crazy, <laughs> this crazy mystery novel called Couched in Blood. Um, that's all about the underworld of psychoanalysis. I was and say, couched in blood. Yeah, I, I see. Uh, yeah, I, I can see the session, the fifty-minute 50 minute session, <laughs> and, and the blood. <laughs> anyway, well, where? What have the uh, been your discoveries? You know, there's there's a whole range of things one can do with within an hour of Paris. What have you discovered that you oh, recommend God. to people? Well, the well, other give me day one, one or two gems. The other day we went to the Marly, mm -hmm. we, the Chateau Marly, but we never made it to the Chateau. And I don't think it was open yet, 
But we walked and laid, we, we brought a picnic blanket and we brought a picnic and we walked through the park, which is huge. And it's not as glorious as the park that backs it up, which is Versailles. But well, it, you know, you it, mentioned picnics and driving. I mean, I don't know if we're, we can on air talk about your experience with Ted uh, driving in, in the hills above Los Angeles. Let the readers discover that for themselves. The, at the hills of Los Angeles? There was a scene I remember in, uh, well, you know, of course, you know, you have, you have hills. In Mulholland Drive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And well, you, that, that, that's to be discovered in the book. Uh, and outside of Marley, what, what was the, perhaps the uh, most, uh, most exciting experience you had with your car? The most exciting experience I had. I don't mean an accident. I mean, no, <laughs> something you can recommend to people. A total disaster. No, I wouldn't recommend it at all. <laughs> Do not drive your car in Paris unless you have to. And, and there are no places that you can get stuck. Because you go up into Montmartre and you can get into a bouchon, which is a traffic jam, or what I call a traffic marmalade, or... <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, you you can get into one and never get out of it, and this is what we did. We were we had to go up. Um, actually, we needed the car. We had to go up to buy some fabric, and um, and a lot of uh, one of the largest fabric stores in all of all of uh, Paris is up up there, just below the the um, uh, Sacre Coeur, and 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 we had the. You know, it's hard to navigate those little tiny streets mm -hmm. because they all go one way. And there's only one street that goes the other way, and so you really need to have your GPS on. Well, our GPS kept putting us in circles because the one street that you could get out of this maze and go in a different direction um, was blocked by somebody who decided that they couldn't find a parking place, and so they took their huge truck and they left it in the middle of the street, locked it up, and walked away. And we couldn't find him, and the 20 cars in front of us couldn't find him, and the five cars behind us couldn't find them. And, and so we're all backing up on streets that go one way to try to find another street to go on, and, but it just kept going in circles. Well, I'm, I'm convinced that these artificially intelligent uh, app, apparatus, uh, appar whatever, uh, are have it in for us. That somewhere along the line, they they, they decide that we're a, a perfect victim, and they uh, and they take care of us. You, you you believe in that science fiction too, huh? Well, absolutely. Anyway, yeah, my dear, this this has been great fun. Uh, it has the, been. the book again, The Most Beautiful Place in the World, and we'll meet and talk again, as the song goes, which I won't sing, and, uh, and we'll definitely talk about the, uh, the new book, Couched in Blood. Uh, we, we can cast that movie after we cast the, uh, the Hotel Algiers. Uh, Judith, great to be with you this morning. Uh, good luck with the book, and Thank you I look so forward much. to seeing you again soon. <laughs> Thank you so much, and you have a really good day. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.